Okay. Um, we have some questions here. Um, and, and we have one question. Will the church be raptured before the tribulation? And um, I, I, I do. I do have some close friends who teach at Dallas Theological Seminary. They're in the New Testament department. And they do think that the church will be raptured before uh, the tribulation. One uh, scholar, his name is Daniel Wallace. He's a very fine scholar. In fact, he has a manuscript institute out in Plano, and he goes around the world photographing new manuscripts that uh, uh, have just been discovered. So he's very interesting. But anyway, he, he, holds that, um, he holds that view. Now, Revelation 3, usually uh, the basis for this view uh, uh, and I'm going to go straight to the best passage uh, that those who hold a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, chapter 3 and verse um, 10. It says, because to the church of um, Philadelphia, because you have kept the word of my endurance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole inhabited world to test the ones dwelling upon the earth. So the typical understanding of that is, if you're faithful to me, I will keep you from this physical hour of tribulation. What does that mean? I'll keep you out. I will rapture you out. Um, so you won't have to go through that tribulation. And the first thing that should strike one is that throughout these letters, there's no promise of physical deliverance before the final deliverance of the resurrection. This would be very unusual um, here to say that they would be um, uh, delivered out of this coming tribulation. But is it possible? Of course it is. But um, one problem with it is that let's see here. Um, John 17 has the same kind of language. So I want you to, to hear it. John 17, I think it's around verse 15. And Jesus says, and you'll remember it well. Um, let's see. He's praying to God, and Jesus says, John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. It's exact same phrase in Greek, tereoek, take them out. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So there is this idea of keeping, of protecting, but it's spiritual protection. So uh, Jesus prays, don't, keep, don't, don't take them out of the world. I'm praying you don't do that, but... Keep them from the evil one. So in the midst of them staying in the world, protect them from the 
wiles and the deceptions of the devil. And um, what, what's interesting about that also is that um, a lot of the same themes in the Upper Room Discourse are also found in um, the letter to um, uh, Philadelphia, for example. It ends, remember, the one who overcomes, he'll, he'll give a reward. And so likewise, um, in, in, in the, the verse preceding chapter 17, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, can't escape it, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And so uh, there's this notion of overcoming. Uh, the last letter talks of Jesus overcoming as the basis for the believers overcoming. And uh, you have the mention of tribulation as well. There are a number of themes here that, that make me think these passages are organically connected so that the phrase, uh, because you kept my word, the word of my endurance, I will keep you from the hour of uh, testing, which is about to come upon the whole inhabitant earth to test the ones dwelling upon the earth, I, I think it's not removing them spatially from the world, but keeping them from the harmful, deceptive influences of this coming tribulation as they pass through it. So um, now, that's one interpretation. It's this is my wife gets mad at me in the Book of Revelation because I'll. Sometimes there are three or four views of one passage. And, and, and she's going through four or five views. She'll finally say to herself, well, which one do you hold, Greg? Just to, to, can't you just say which one you hold first and I don't have to read the rest? And so um, here's the second view. I'm only going to give you two views. The second view is this. It's very possible. It says, because you've kept the word of my endurance, uh, I also will keep you from the hour." of testing, which is about to come upon the whole inhabited earth. If you do a word study on hour in the book of Revelation, guess what? Almost always refers to the hour of final judgment. And so this may be referring, of course I'm going to deliver you from the final judgment. I'll keep you from this hour of testing. Uh, that's probably the simplest view, and it's supported by the use of hour throughout the book. So, um, yeah. This is talking about a rapture. Uh, it's the resurrection of the saints that keeps them from the final judgment. Though technically they'll pass through it, but in Christ, and they will not be harmed. So um, that's my answer to that question. Will the church be raptured before the tribulation? Uh, I don't think so. However, um, I do have one other um, comment, and the question is, uh, for those who do think the church will be raptured, they say, well, Beal, the word church is used throughout the letters, chapters 1 to 3, uh, the introduction and the letters of chapters 2 and 3. You don't find the word church anywhere in chapters 4 all the way to 22, 5. And then at the end when the church is directly addressed, you find the church again. Doesn't that mean something? And, um, well, uh, it's, it's really a good observation. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure why that is. Um, I'm still working on that one. But what I can say is that throughout that visionary section of chapter 4 to 22.5, the Gentile nations are described as true Israel. Church isn't used. The Gentile nations are described as true Israel. 
If you want me to show you that, I'd be happy to. Um, but uh, so I, basically, conceptually, the church is mentioned in uh, chapters 4 to 22. And you, you want to be careful of making what's called the word-concept distinction. Just because a word doesn't occur doesn't mean the concept isn't there. For example, I argue that Eden is a, a sanctuary, but nowhere is the word sanctuary used in, the, in, in chapters 1 to 3 of Genesis. However, in Ezekiel 28, you've got to wait a while, it does refer to Eden as a sanctuary. So there we do have it. But if you're just reading Genesis, you, you know, you, but the concept is there. It's just like people say, there's no covenant. You may disagree on this, but I would say that there's a covenant of works in the garden. And, um, but so and so, the word covenant isn't mentioned. How can you say there's a covenant of works? Well, marriage is mentioned. And Malachi chapter 2 calls it a covenant. But Genesis doesn't. So you don't have to have the word uh, to have the concept. And so I, I, I think the same is true with temple. And uh, I don't even know what I'm talking about now. What, why did I bring in temple and Eden? Anybody know? What were we talking about? <laughs> thank you, thank you. So you, the word, I'm getting tired. So my wife were here, she'd pull me out with a little cane to get out of here now. Um, so yeah, we have the concept of the church, but we don't have the word. But I, I, I still think it's worth a dissertation maybe for someone to work on as to why that, that is. Okay, next one. I saw that you mentioned Theodotion in your slide on Daniel 2. Could you tell us about Theodotion? And uh, if someone was going to read Daniel in the Greek Old Testament, would you recommend Theodotion? Well, um, in Daniel, there are two Greek Old Testaments. And one is called the Old Greek, and another is called Theodotion. Just happens to be the case. In many books, there's only one Greek text, but in Daniel, there are two. It occurs in a few other books occasionally. But... So uh, uh, Theodosian is really a pretty straightforward translation of the canonical Daniel in Aramaic and Hebrew, whereas the Old Greek, sometimes traditionally referred to as LXX, because it refers to 70 who supposedly composed, there were 70 translators by legend of the, LX, of, of the Greek Old Testament. Anyway, uh, the Old Greek is very expansive in Daniel. Um, it, uh, it, it adds almost a a half a chapter of uh, the uh, friends of Daniel who, after they come out of the furnace and it's just praise. It, it just goes on and on and on and on about their praise. And when Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes out of being, uh, he's delivered from being an animal and a beast, there's a long, almost a chapter uh, expansion of his praise. It's, it's kind of a super-duper living Bible uh, because it's very paraphrastic and, and ad. So... Yeah, uh, if, you, um, if you if you have accordance, it'll show you both of the, the Greek and Theodosian and of the, uh, uh, the old Greek. Um, there, there is a, a, a Greek Old Testament floating around, and it's now in the public domain. It's by a guy named Sir Lancelot Brenton, and it used to be published by Zondervan, but it's, it's a, uh, it has the Greek text, of Theodosian and the English translation, 
Um, so I, yeah, I mean, if you, if you really want both, you can also get the actual hard copy of Ralph's Septuaginta. That's, that's what's called Septuaginta. I mean, Septuagint. Ralph's is spelled R-A-H-L-F-S. Ralph's. And it will have in Daniel both the Greek, Old Greek, and Theodosian. One's on the top of the page, one's on the bottom. So I don't know who asked that question, but those are some tools that you can get if you want some further questions on that. Feel free to ask me. What is corporate solidarity? Corporate solidarity is uh, where we, we sometimes call it the one and the many. Where, um, for example, you remember Achan? He took some of the silver and uh, other some of the booty of the enemy and hid it in his tent and Israel's judge for it. And so he was stoned, but so were his family. So was his family. And so uh, he represented them. He, his actions represented them, just as Adam's actions represent us. He disobeyed, we're seen as disobeying. He was punished, we get that punishment. And that's what happened with Achan. In fact, I think... Achan is meant to be seen as a little miniature Adam because it says, um, uh, what's the language when he looks at the treasure? He looked and he saw and he desired. Does that remind you of anything? Yeah. So I think there's this attempt to show him as a little miniature Adam and his family, unfortunately, following in suit. And so kings, if a king did something bad, Israel would be cursed. Because remember David, uh, when he numbered the army, and God says you're going to be judged, and and the judgment was um, causing uh, uh, Israel to have a plague, as I recall. And um, so when kings did something well, Israel would be blessed. When heads of families did something well, the family would be blessed, or accordingly they would be uh, cursed. Prophets would represent nations. And so uh, the classic corporate solidarity is our union with Christ. Uh, when we come to trust in Christ, we are in union with him. Now, that union is understood in, in various ways. I think, first of all, there is this mystical union. You can't explain it all, just as you can't explain how a husband and wife are one. Yes, of course, you can explain that physically, but Genesis 2, when it says that, uh, the two became one, it's more than physical, and it's, it's a mystical union, even in marriage, and so how much more with us in Christ. So there's this mystical union can't fully explain it, but we can say it involves identification. We're identified with Christ. And what he has, we have. For example, when he rose from the dead, uh, he became an escalated son of God. And so we become sons of God in him. When he rose from the dead, he became an escalated uh, Adamic image. And so when we trust in him, in union with him, we take on that image. Not perfectly, but we grow progressively in that image, and so on and so on. So there's identification. And then there's also participation involved in union. Participation uh, is this. You know, Paul will say in Romans 6, you know, we died with Christ and we rose with Christ. We were actually seen as participating in some of the past redemptive historical acts of Christ. How so? That's that's hard, but but we were. And... um, that's in Reformed theology is called uh, the Historia Salutis. 
That is, uh, our, our, our role in past history of salvation. The ordo salutis is the order of salvation, which traditionally was regeneration, um, uh, justification, sanctification, and um, I think it really just means our present salvific experience with Christ. Because when we trust in Christ, we become everything he became at the same time. And uh, even justification, he was uh, justified by his resurrection. He was declared righteous so that the verdict of the world was overturned. And so when we are in union with him, we are declared righteous. The world's verdict on us is overturned. And, of course, what was not true with Christ is true of us. Our sin is, uh, uh, we're declared to be righteous from our sin. And so, so you've got union, you've got participation, um, and uh, identification, um, and, and corporate uh, solidarity, which is what this question was originally about. What is corporate solidarity? We are in some way in union uh, with, with Christ. It's a mystical union. We can try to parse it out in the way I have, but ultimately there's a mystical element in it. Sir, anybody want to ask further questions on, on that? That's what my new book is about. It's uh, uh, union with the resurrected Christ, where I talk about about 19 different things that he became that we become. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to fill the whole earth? There are some people who have read my book. Uh, Will, was that your question? Yes. You stinker. Okay. <laughs> I had a feeling. Um, some people have read... Will, have you ever read my book, The Temple and the Church's Mission? Oh, gosh. I did just get Got to read it because some people think I'm post-millennial after reading it. So you gotta, what? Temple. Yeah, the temple one. And so there I argue that our task is to expand and fill the whole earth. And uh, the thing is, it won't be, we won't complete it as a church. At some time, Christ will come back and he'll complete that procedure. I don't think we're going to fill the whole earth. That, that's my ultimate answer to the Daniel question. Um, so it's probably not a satisfying answer to you, but that's, uh, that's, that's my... Uh, that's my answer, especially since when you see uh, Daniel interpreted uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, uh, it's not the whole earth. It's a remnant that Christ is dying for. So um, I think uh, what it may mean is this. Christ will redeem everyone according to his will in the earth. Uh, that, that he wills to be saved, but the others who don't submit will be pacified. And in that sense, the kingdom of God fills the whole earth. So um, uh, he'll, he'll have to put enemy forces down at the end, and then there'll be those who will trust in him. But when you begin to look at the Daniel references, like we looked at two of them in, in, in Revelation 5, it's a remnant. It's some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Daniel 7 further interprets Daniel 2. They're both about four kingdoms, if you remember. So, in my view, if we have a question about the Old Testament, and it's unclear, I'm going to let Scripture clear that up. 
especially the progressive revelatory stage of the New Testament, that in some ways trumps the old because it's the unfolding interpretation of the Old Testament. It's intended to be a progressive revelatory interpretation of the Old Testament. So I'm going to go with that in cases where there may be some lack of clarity. That's, that's a hermeneutical stance at that point. And I find that some post-millennialists, it may not be you, but I find that some try to interpret these texts without going to the way they're used in the New Testament, sometimes. Please. I love it. I like him. And I, as I told you, I've visited with him, and he's a very, um, very nice fellow to talk to. So we would agree on that. It would just come to the different interpretation of the biblical texts. I did ask him this question. You might be interested. Should we execute people who don't keep the Sabbath? That was a hard one. He... He had a heart. He basically didn't answer the question. So, but you know what? You know what? In his defense, in his defense, there's always in every position that we hold, there are going to be problem passages that we can't answer. Okay, and the position that we end up holding is the position that we feel has the least amount of problems, and that's actually what we're talking about here. You find more problems with uh, millennialism than I find with postmillennialism, and that's why we hold what we do. And uh, um, so, you know, uh, Corey Tenboom said, "All of this, all these issues are a preposterous. <laughs> They're preposterous." But she tried to make a punning joke about millennialism with it. Um, why do you think churches are fearful and avoid preaching verse by verse through Revelation? Uh, you think it's to get out from under the yoke of the dispensational ecosystem of American evangelicalism? Um, so uh, I, I'll give you my basic answer. I think most people don't preach the majority of Revelation. is just too hard. <laughs> That's why they're, they're afraid of it. They don't know what to do with it. Um, now, those who will preach it, I have found, uh, are sometimes those who take it very literally. And, uh, and so they, it's very easy for them. Oh, that's, that's a 100-pound hail. Oh, you know, here we have this, here we have that. So, um, but I have found people who uh, take the approach I take. I find more and more preaching through it, and they're, they're finding that the use of the Old Testament is the key to uh, under, understanding Revelation. They've tried to do that, and... And, and I've been encouraged, as some people have written me about it. Um, does amillennialism have a problem with Christ's imminent return? Will we know if Satan is released from his binding? Um, that's a very difficult question. Um, First Thessalonians, uh, Paul says in chapter 5 that Christ will come like a thief. Uh, we don't know when. Thief in the night. So Paul says it's imminent. But then all of a sudden, and this is why some people don't think Paul wrote Second Thessalonians. Uh, I think he did. But in Second Thessalonians, in chapter 2, it says there have to be two signs before Christ comes back. 
One sign is the final apostasy, and the second sign is the appearance of the man of lawlessness. So, well, Paul, which is it? Is, Paul, is Christ coming like a thief, or do we have these two signs, we recognize them, and then he comes? Paul, that seems contradictory. And so I've thought about, I mean, how do you, this, is, this has been a classic uh, uh, issue for theology, and here's the way I conceive uh, of how to see uh, how those two fit together. First John 2.18 says this, My little children, it's the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. I tell you, many Antichrists have already come from this. We know it is the last hour. And so what that tells us is in Christ's time and throughout the church age, there are these Antichrist figures. And, in fact, at one of the breaks today, someone was saying, haven't the popes been Antichrist? Yeah, I think some of the popes have been Antichrist figures. Uh, I, I, I think some people in uh, Protestantism have been Antichrist figures, and so on. So I, these Antichrist figures can arise. Uh, and, and sometimes they really, it looks like, hey, this is the one. And, and so the saints put on their white clothes and go to a mountain and sell all their possessions as actually happened in Korea in the 1990s. Christ didn't come back, and some people committed suicide. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing. It's very awful. But you can trace this in past history, how people have sold their possessions because this is it, and yet it wasn't it. It, it, The Antichrist figure, he was just a figure. He didn't reach the peak of the full Antichrist who was to come. And so it's like a chart. So you see these different peaks, I don't know, maybe like a financial chart, you know, and some are higher than others, but a time is going to come when uh, the Antichrist, the real Antichrist will be here, he looks like the others, and looks like the others, and then lickety-split, he is it. And I, I think that we'll really know what those two signs are, uh, as they're happening and when they're culminated. They'll happen so quickly, I think, that uh, it'll be like a thief, and, and then as it's concluding, we'll say, yep, this, this is it. So I think, I, I, I think uh, that, that's how they go together, that, that this will happen so quickly at the end that um, uh, it'll be fulfilled before we know it. That's, uh, that's, that's my view on that particular issue. What is the relationship of Psalm 2, 1 through 2, and Peter's interpretation of it in Acts 4, 26? Um, let's see, Acts. We're obviously not going to be able to go through all of these. Acts 4, 22. says that... Um, in verse uh, 25, that by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, um, the Holy Spirit said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So that, that prophecy 
for the Gentiles were to rage. They take their stand against the Messiah. Is seen as fulfilled in uh, in the crucifixion. That's what um, Luke is saying here. And by the way, who's included among the raging Gentiles? Israel. So they're really just among the nations. They're really not true Israel. You see, they're fulfilling this. It's just the nations who rage, but now it's the Gentiles and Israel. Israel's joining the Gentiles. It's just as in Isaiah. Uh, chapter 13 to 23. If you read those chapters, each one is a chapter on judgment on different nations. And all of a sudden in chapter 2, it's judgment on Israel. And then it goes on to judgment of another nation. Why? Israel's become like the nations. As repeatedly uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel say, they become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, so, and that, that's why when we get to Christ, he's reconstituting Israel in himself and creating a new Israel. Yes, sir? Um, when I say he's recreating Israel, yes, ethnic Israel, yes, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you. Any, so I, I think that's the answer to that. Um, is there any use of he who has ears to hear, let them hear, uh, elsewhere in scripture that doesn't relate to a symbol or a parable? No. And that's why I think it's so significant. When we when we uh, when we find this, according to Second Peter three seven, will this present world be completely destroyed by fire? Well, let's read it. I'm afraid this is going to have to be the last one. I'm sorry for those of you who didn't get your questions answered, but I I I have done my valiant best. So Second um, Peter three seven. We got the remnant here now. But what's a postmillennialist doing here? <laughs> okay. Chapter 3, verse 7. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But he goes on and, and, and he says... Uh, in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. Elements be destroyed with an intense heat. Earth and its works burned up. Since all these things are be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God? On which account the heavens will be destroyed. Repeats it by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens, new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Now there are some post-millennialists who take this figuratively, and they see this as a an ethical renovation of the earth, not a material destruction and renovation of the earth. Um, the repetition of the language, I mean, it's possible, it's figurative. I don't think it's likely. I think this is a classic text talking about the actual destruction of the, um, of the heavens and the earth. So... Um, yeah, um, my view of the way heavens and earth are going to be des destroyed is, and, and what will come out on the other side, uh, it, my view is, is based on the resurrection. 
Christ rose, but he wasn't the same person, was he? But you could identify him. He was a new person. He'd been reconstituted. He wasn't the same person. In other words, formally, he, he was corruptible in terms of his flesh. Now he's not. And so that's why I think that when we're resurrected, we will be able to recognize one another. Even though at first Mary didn't recognize Jesus, finally she, she did. You know, uh, I'll have hair. You might not recognize me at first, okay? So, um, so we'll be able to recognize one another, but we're reconstituted. And so I think what's going to happen is that there'll be a destruction of the new heavens and earth. There'll be chaos, and God will recreate the new heavens and earth from that chaos and recreate us and resurrect us from the midst of that chaos. And um, uh, so that the new world will resemble the old world, just like our bodies in the new world will resemble our bodies in the old world. So the new world, in various ways, will resemble uh, the old world because it'll be like it. It's been reconstituted from it. So... Uh, so, so there is this um, a distinction between the old world and the new world, but I don't think it's as mild as just there's an ethical uh, cleansing of the earth and then the same physical earth continues on. Um, yes? So different from the destruction of the flood. Yes, so the flood is interesting because you do have this destruction, but the same earth continues, even though it's been reconfigured. Yeah, yeah. I think we better... Uh, I think we better call it quits. I, I'm sorry for those of you who did not get your answers, your questions answered. All right. Thank you, Dr. Bill. And we'll be dismissed. Let me dismiss us in prayer, and you guys are free to go about your way. Dearly Father, thank you so much for our wonderful, wonderful conference today and all that we got to learn and study and to focus on your word and focus on you. And we thank you that Jesus does reign supreme. I would thank you for preparing Dr. Bill all these years through his studies to be able to stand and equip us today. Pray that you would continue to use him to equip the church. And uh, even next week as he's uh, going to be used to equip elders and pastors and helping them to understand uh, the importance of the Old Testament and the New Testament and seeing these things uh, clearly, Lord. Uh, thank you for our wonderful time today.